Yesterday, I had the chance to do a wedding. Uh, Rachel Kerr, who's a part of our church and her family's been part of the church for a long time, uh, she married a guy named Stephen Wumert. It was a beautiful wedding. It was especially beautiful because both Rachel and Stephen are professional musicians, and so the music was really excellent uh, at the wedding. So that was great. Uh, but you know, doing weddings, they're fun, uh, but it's always, uh, for me when I do them, they're always a little intimidating. And I'm always a little amazed when we get to the end of the ceremony and I pronounce them husband and wife, that it actually works, like they are actually married. Like, that just seems surprising to me. Like, it seems like someone with some actual authority ought to be able to have to come in and approve this thing. Uh, And so I'm always taken aback by the fact that God's entrusted to his church the responsibility and authority to declare a man and a woman united uh, as husband and wife, and that when the pronouncement is done, they're husband and wife. And that's, that's crazy to me. That's a big responsibility. And as you think about uh, our responsibility as a church to do that, I'm reminded that that's not our only responsibility as a church when it comes to helping a couple. We also have a responsibility not only to pronounce them husband and wife, but to try to help them be successful as husband and wife. And so this always comes back to me when I sit down with the couple to kind of uh, meet with them and to begin planning and working towards uh, what's going to happen in the future. There's always kind of two goals that I have to cover in the meetings with them. The first is we got to get this ceremony planned. Uh, We need to put together what's this supposed to look like because without the ceremony... We can't establish this relationship, and that's part of our responsibility as a church is to help establish the relationship. But the other thing that I'm doing when we meet with them is we're trying to say, okay, how can we help you be successful so that this relationship isn't just established, it's also a blessing. And so we try to do some counseling. Often we do premarital counseling. More and more these days, we're also doing counseling after marriage when people have actually begun uh, to start their married life and we want to come alongside and help them. And as I try to think about it, these are really our two essential responsibilities to a marrying couple, to establish their relationship and to counsel them and help them to be successful in their relationship. Now, I tell you all of this. Because this morning we're going to look at another religious ceremony or a ceremony that takes place in the Bible. And it's important to understand the difference between establishing a relationship through a ceremony and helping people be successful in that relationship. Those two things are related, but they're separate. For example, we could have a couple come to us and we could do counseling for them but they may may never actually go through the marriage ceremony. Likewise, we could have a couple go through a marriage ceremony, but then never do any counseling to help them be successful. They are separate things, but more normally we see our responsibility as having these two things go together. It's our job to help establish the relationship, to pronounce them husband and wife, and our job to help them be successful in their relationship, to counsel them and encourage them so that the relationship is a blessing. Well, when we look at this ceremony that we're about to see in the Bible that the children of Israel go through, it's going to be important for us to keep that distinction in mind, that there is a separation between establishing a relationship 
and becoming successful or being blessed by that relationship. We need to keep that in mind not only because we're going to look at a ceremony that took place uh, thousands of years ago, we're also going to reenact that ceremony this morning, not in letter but in spirit. And as we do so, it's going to be important that we keep in mind how a relationship is established is distinct from counseling someone to help them be successful or have that relationship be a blessing. So with that in mind, let's turn to Joshua chapter 8 and look at this religious ceremony that God has for us this morning. Joshua chapter 8, in the church Bibles, it's page 175. So if you don't have a Bible with you, just look under your seat or in the rack in front of you. Turn one of those Bibles to page 175, and you'll be in the portion of Scripture we'll be looking at this morning. While you're turning, let me locate us in the story that Joshua is telling. In the book of Joshua, God is recalling for us or recounting for us how he led his people into the land he promised to their forefather, Abraham. God made Abraham a promise about land. The children of Israel are his descendants, and God is fulfilling that promise. This piece of land, which is a real piece of land in the Middle East between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, is being given by God to his people. And so God, so far in the book of Joshua, has led them across the Jordan River, settled them at Gilgal. They were uh, successful in defeating Jericho. Then came the incident at Ai. We talked about that over the last couple of weeks. Ai was this little outpost that was supposed to be no trouble whatsoever. I mean, Jericho is this giant city, and God just knocks the walls down. Ai should be no trouble whatsoever, but Israel had sinned against God. They had stolen from God. They had lied. They had held on to devoted things, and so when they went to Ai, God didn't go with them, and that made all the difference. And so they were roundly defeated at Ai. They come back to God, and Joshua especially says, Lord, what are you doing? You're killing me. I don't even want to be doing this, and this is so difficult. You promised to be with us. Where are you? And God says, "Uh, it wasn't me that failed you. You have sin in the camp. And so when he makes that known to Joshua, Joshua, cut to the heart, gets the whole nation. They make it right. They confess. And then God does what he always does. Listen to me. What he always does when people get serious about sin. He ripped open heaven and poured out grace. Just beyond what you can imagine. Just poured out such grace. And they go back to Ai. And they not only conquer Ai, but Bethel as well. Unbelievable. God is generous. He just simply gives them more than they could have ever hoped for or imagined. Now, the danger for them, just like for us, is once you see this pattern of we stole from God, we confessed, God gave us immeasurably more than we could have asked for in the first place, as humans, our natural tendency would be let's repeat the pattern, let's steal some more, then we'll confess. And then we'll get even more grace. Well, God, knowing what we're like as humans, takes the children of Israel through a ceremony right after Ai 
to remind them of how their relationship with God is supposed to work. That there are blessings for obedience and that there are curses for disobedience. That's the ceremony that we're looking at this morning in Joshua chapter 8. I'm going to read for us verses 30 to 35. Then Joshua built on Mount Ebal an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites. He built it according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no iron tool had been used. On it they offered to the Lord burnt offerings and sacrificed fellowship offerings. There... In the presence of the Israelites, Joshua wrote on stones a copy of the law of Moses. We think that's probably the Ten Commandments that he's rewriting on stones. All the Israelites, with their elders, officials, and judges, were standing on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, facing the Levitical priests who carried it. Both the foreigners living among them and the native-born were there. Half of the people stood in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them stood in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had formerly commanded when he gave instructions to bless the people of Israel. Afterward, Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, just as it was written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel including the women and children and the foreigners who lived among them. Okay, we have a very specific religious ceremony happening in a specific place. Let's put our map up here so we can kind of orient ourselves to where we are because this is taking place in a real geographic location. What you have here is kind of a a view of the promised land. It's between the Jericho River, uh, sorry, the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. You can see Jericho, where the Israelites, uh, the first city they conquered. You can see Ai and Bethel, which are kind of in the middle. Their victory at Ai frightens everybody in the land, and so they're able to go to Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal and hold this ceremony. And the ceremony happens in between those two mountains. Now, it's not mentioned in the text, but the city that's between those two mountains is Shechem. And so they're there in this very specific spot, carrying out the commands that God gave them through Moses. In Deuteronomy, twice, Moses says, when you get into the land, go to this exact spot and do this ceremony in this exact way. Meaning, put the Ark of the Covenant, which represents God in the middle, Take half the people, not just the soldiers, men, women, children, foreigners, everybody who's there. Half of them are, have Mount Gerizim at their back, and half of them have Mount Ebal at the back. Everybody's facing the middle towards Shechem where the Ark of the Covenant is. Joshua then, while they're all watching, chisels out on stone tablets what we think are the Ten Commandments where he's rewriting uh, the essence of the law that God gave Uh, through Moses, to the children of Israel. He then, with everybody in this hearing, reads a portion of the law of Moses. What we think he reads is what's known as the blessings and the curses, 
which is Deuteronomy 27 and 28. We think Joshua has all of the people gathered together and he reads aloud for them, Deuteronomy 27 and 28, a smaller portion of the Torah or the law of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament. This ceremony that they go through has two things that are important for us to understand in order to get what's going on and in order for us to reenact it this morning. The first thing we have to understand about this ceremony is why it is taking place where it's taking place. God is very specific. Go to this exact spot between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. That's where the ceremony must take place. Why? Well, Genesis chapter 12 tells us why. In Genesis chapter 12... We've now backed up about 500 years back to the time of Abraham. Abraham is the forefather of all the Jewish people. And we've come back to God's very first interactions with Abraham, which take place in Genesis 12. It says, Abraham traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at where? Shechem. That's this spot. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now, last week we saw that right after this, he's going to go to Ai and Bethel and be right between those two mountains. But this, Shechem, is the very first place that Abraham arrives in the land. This is the very first place he comes to. Now, if we looked at Genesis 12, we're not going to take the time this morning to do that. Genesis 12 starts with a proposal from God to Abraham. Abraham, go to, the land, go to a land that I will show you and I will make your name great. I will bless you. I will make you a blessing. All the nations of the world will be blessed through you. Abraham hearing that proposal, accepts. And he begins a journey with God, a journey that is leading him to Shechem. Shechem is the first place where Abraham comes into the land, and it's the first place where God appears to him. The promise in Genesis 12, what we would call the unconditional Abrahamic covenant, to use sort of uh, church language for it, Basically is this idea that God says to Abraham, hey, look, come with me and I will bless you. Come with me and I'm going to make your name great. When they get to Shechem, God actually appears to Abraham and says, here it is. This is the land. I'm now going to give this land to you. So back to our marriage analogy. Genesis 12 is essentially the wedding day. God has proposed to Abraham Abraham has accepted by faith. They've journeyed together until they get to Shechem, at which point God appears to him and says, we now are connected. I'm your God. You're my son. This is now your land. I will give it to your descendants. The reason why the children of Israel are coming to this exact same spot all these years later is God wants to remind them 
that the relationship that God has with Israel is not based on anything that Israel did. It's based on the fact that God proposed to Abraham, Abraham accepted by faith, and as a result, the children of Israel are now the people of God. See, that's very important. When we do marriage counseling, we would frown on a husband or a man proposing to a wife and saying, well, I'd be willing to marry you if you did this, 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 and this. That would not go well. That would not be a good thing. What you do when you propose is simply say, I love you, and I want to spend the rest of my life with you. And the person who is being proposed to doesn't say, well, I'll do this, 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 and this. They simply say, I accept. That's how God established a relationship with Abraham. He simply showed up in Genesis 12 and said, Abraham, I love you. I want to spend the rest of eternity with you. Abraham didn't do anything to make that happen. He just simply by faith accepted. And so God has brought the children of Israel back to the point, the wedding day, to remind them, look, we have a relationship, not because of anything you do or don't do, not based on your obedience or your disobedience. Remember, at Ai, they were disobedient. God's trying to remind them, hey, look, there was some punishment associated with that, but that never jeopardized our relationship. That's why when you confessed it, God's response was grace. Because their relationship is not based on what they do. A relationship is established because God said, I love you. I want to spend eternity with you. And when Abraham accepted by faith, his descendants became children of God and they entered into a relationship. Now there's a second thing that happens in this chapter that we have to understand and that's what they do when they get to the spot. The spot is chosen to remind them of how their relationship was established. What they do when they get to the spot is designed to recall something else from their history, not Abraham, but Moses. Again, to use theological language, we have the Abrahamic covenant, which is Genesis 12, what they do in this spot recalls the Mosaic Covenant, which, it exi- which is Exodus chapter 20 and following. Now, with the Mosaic Covenant, God appears to the nation of Israel and gives them a set of laws. This is what Joshua is, is chiseling away on stone. This is part of what Joshua is reading aloud to them. So while the site that is chosen connects to Abraham, the thing that they're doing connects to Moses. And this, to use our marriage analogy, is not the wedding ceremony. It's the marriage counseling. The Abrahamic covenant is the wedding. The Mosaic covenant is the counseling. In other words, the Mosaic Covenant does not nullify or eliminate the Abrahamic Covenant. It works with it. And the way the Mosaic Covenant works is, God says, within the relationship that I already have with you, here's how to experience blessing. 
Here's how to live in such a way that this relationship is a wonderful blessing and not a curse. And all the rules and the laws that we have in the Mosaic Law are not designed to establish a relationship. They're designed to make the relationship a blessing. And God says within our relationship, if you do this, you will be blessed. If you don't do this, you will be blessed. That's the point of what they're doing at that ceremony. First of all, because where they're standing, they are being reminded they have a relationship with God, not because of what they did, but because God proposed and they accepted. But they are also being reminded that within this relationship, obedience brings blessing, disobedience brings cursing. Does everybody understand the difference between establishing the relationship and being counseled to be successful in the relationship? God wants both things in mind in Joshua chapter 8. Now, what does this have to do with us? We are going to reenact this ceremony this morning, not in letter, but in spirit. What do I mean? I mean that when we think about our relationship with God, if you're a Christian here this morning, you have a relationship with God not because of anything you did or didn't do. It's because God proposed to you and said, I love you and want to spend eternity with you. And if you accepted that proposal by faith, then you're a Christian. That establishes the relationship. For those who are kind of keeping track using like covenant language, that's what the Bible calls the new covenant. The Abrahamic covenant, God and Abraham, the Mosaic covenant shows them how to live in light of that relationship. The new covenant establishes our relationship with God so that we as Christians can now be the sons and daughter of God. And God wants us to know this morning, nothing that we do or don't do affects that relationship. It is established simply by faith. God proposed, we accept it. Within the context of that relationship, however, God gives to us the law or the Bible which explains to us how to live in our relationship with God in such a way that we experience blessings and not cursings. That's what the instructions in the Bible are meant to do. It's not if you obey this stuff then you become a Christian. It is if you are a Christian and you live in light of God's word you will experience the maximum amount of blessings within this relationship. That's why in Joshua 1, 8, and 9, we say every week, do not keep the book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. It doesn't say then you'll be a Christian. If you take the book of the law and you meditate on it day and night, you will be prosperous and successful. It's telling us how to live within our relationship with God in such a way that we experience blessings and not cursings. So this morning, in order to reenact what happened in Joshua chapter 8, we are going to do communion a little differently. The way this is going to work in just a little bit, uh, elders and deacons are going to distribute 
uh, bread and a cup. If you are a Christian, meaning God proposed, told you that he loved you and you accepted, take a piece of bread, take a cup, and hold on to it. While you are holding that bread and that cup in your hand, it is a reminder to you that your relationship with God was not established because of what you did or didn't do. It was simply established because God proposed and you accepted. While you are holding that bread and that cup, which symbolizes how you got the relationship, I'm going to read aloud to us a portion of the law. Now, I'm not going to read Deuteronomy 27 and 28. I was going to. The more I prayed about it this week, God says, I have a different portion I want you to read to them. But just like Joshua didn't read the whole first five books of the Old Testament, I'm not going to read you all 66 books of the Bible. Thank the Lord for that. I'm going to read a smaller portion which is specifically associated with blessings and cursings within the relationship we have with God. So while you're holding that bread and cup, which reminds you that you have a relationship with God through Jesus by faith, I want you to listen carefully to the words of Scripture as I read them, because in those words of Scripture, God is going to be speaking directly to us, telling us how to experience the maximum amount of blessing within this relationship. And if you hear these words that I read to you today, just like Joshua read to the Israelites thousands of years ago, and you do them, you will experience incredible blessings from God in the relationship. If while you're holding that bread and that cup, you, like me, hear some words that make you think, ooh, I don't think I'm doing that very well. This is a great chance to simply in your heart say to the Lord, Lord, please forgive me. And then at the end, we'll partake of communion together. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and say all manner of evil falsely against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds 
and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand them your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you.
You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, Go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast... Do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will be obvious, not obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness... How great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not reap or sow or weigh in barns, 
yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to, swamp, to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Ask and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate. And narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. 